play on my wife, which she doesn't think is very funny. But uh, whenever we're in a public place and I catch my reflection in a mirror, I jump very dramatically as though I've scared myself by catching my reflection. And uh, people usually give us weird looks, and I think that's probably why she doesn't think it's a funny joke. But I get a good laugh out of it, so it's all worth it. But have you ever been scared to look in the mirror? I don't say that rudely. Uh, some people don't like to look in mirrors. Uh, they don't much like what they see in the mirror. Uh, other people maybe like what they see a little too much and spend a little too much time in front of the mirror. But either way, we all need to look in the mirror at some point because we need to know what we really look like, don't we? Uh, we have sort of an idea of what we look like, but day to day it's helpful to look in the mirror to know for sure. And that's the same with the Christian life. Being a Christian means constantly looking at what James calls the mirror of God's word. Only this mirror doesn't show us what's on our faces so much as it shows us what's in our hearts. And that can be truly scary. It's interesting that tomorrow is Memorial Day. Uh, we typically like to do a little reflection on Memorial Day. And while it's somber, for sure, to think about those who have given what Lincoln called the last full measure of devotion to their country, uh, it's still enjoyable. We still like to gather and to remember those who have fallen. But when it comes to reflecting on our own lives, we're a little less enthusiastic. Uh, especially when it comes to the deep desires and motivations of our hearts. But God insists that his people make a regular practice of this, and we know that from Haggai chapter 1. So if you want to turn there this morning, that's going to be our text. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 667. Uh, if you are using your own, it's probably one of the crispier pages still. Uh, if you turn to Matthew, it's three books back from Matthew in the New Testament. And just to give a little background, Haggai was a post-exilic prophet, meaning after the exile. So in the year 586 BC, the Babylonians conquered the nation of Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem. And when they conquered Jerusalem, they destroyed everything, including the temple. And they deported a big chunk of the people of Israel, uh, including their, all their leaders, to Babylon, where they remained for several years. But as things happen in the Middle East, after a few years, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And so several more were deported to Persia. And it was King Cyrus of Persia in 539 BC who issued a decree for the Jews to return to Jerusalem and to build the temple, to rebuild the temple that Solomon had built so many generations ago. So you can read about this in Ezra chapter 6 uh, on your own time. This decree was affirmed by Darius, who came after Cyrus as a king of Persia. Uh, so in 538, the people return. But in the face of threats and persecution, they stopped working on the temple. Uh, they made sure to finish their own houses, uh, but they didn't complete the work that God had commissioned them to do on the temple. So in 520 B.C. and August of 520 B.C., we actually know that, God spoke to his people through the prophet Haggai. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, 
and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on all the labor of your hands." Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Now this might be a, an unfamiliar passage to many of us. Uh, it might seem kind of weird that God is so preoccupied with houses. Uh, it's like maybe he's been watching too much HGTV or something. But to think about the importance of this passage, we need to go back a little bit and think about the importance of the house of the Lord, which was the tabernacle and later the temple. See, in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God cast them out of his presence. And for generation after generation, there was no physical manifestation of the Lord in the world, anywhere. That changed when God came down and spoke to Moses as he was bringing the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He said, Moses, I want you to build a tabernacle for me. That's a big portable tent. And that will be the physical manifestation of God's presence among his people. So that would be the place where I'll meet with my people, but because you're still sinners, it's where you'll come and offer blood sacrifices to enter my presence because your sin deserves death and you need to understand that. And not only that, but the tabernacle was to function as the center of the life of the people. So when Israel came out of Egypt, uh, they were wandering through the desert, as Pastor Doug mentioned, uh, referenced in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And as they were wandering, they would camp place after place. But everywhere they would camp, the tabernacle was to be placed in the center, and the tribes of Israel would fan out like spokes on a wheel so that the, the tabernacle would be in the center of their camp wherever they went. And that was to signify that God's glory and God's beauty was to be the focus of their life together. And so when they came and settled in the land of Israel, uh, after a few generations, 
God commissioned Solomon to build a temple, which was really a permanent residence, so to speak. If the tabernacle was a, a portable one, a campsite, so to speak, the temple was the house. That was the permanent place where God's presence would dwell in the midst of his people. And it would function roughly the same. People could meet with God there, and they would offer their blood sacrifices on account for their sin. But even the description of the temple, if you read the book of Exodus, uh, basically uh, the last several chapters are about the description of how they were to build the temple and then the actual building of it. And it's beautiful. Maybe you've seen a picture, a, a, a model display at some point of what this temple looked like, but it was supposed to be beautiful to image to the world, the onlooking world, this is who our God is. He is a glorious God. And that beautiful, glorious temple was the one that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And so Haggai gives this sermon, and the problem that the Israelites have had here is that they're more concerned with their own houses than with God's. Now, just a quick note on verse 4. Uh, he criticizes them for living in their paneled houses. Uh, this isn't referring to, like, the kind of 70s, 80s interior decor. Uh, this just meant finished. So the paneling was usually the roof. So you put up all the, the foundation in the walls and then the roof is the last thing you put on and that was a paneled roof. So for him to say you live in your paneled houses, it means you finished your thing, but my thing is still undone. It's unfinished. But God in his kindness comes and confronts the people of Israel in their ways. And so we pick it up in verse five. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. And you can hear it echoed again in verse 7. That's kind of the structure of Haggai's sermon. He says, give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. And he's got two different purposes for repeating that. The first is he wants them to reflect. And so verse 6, he gives five statements. He says, you have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So in summary, he says, look at how little you have given how much effort you've put into getting it. Now, we may not be able to relate directly to their situation. We don't often experience drought or physical lack. So I've revised those statements to maybe speak a little more to our generation and our time. Consider these five statements. You work yourself to death in order to gain some measure of worldly success but you never quite achieve it. You try so hard in relationship after relationship, thinking if other people just like me enough, or if at least the right people like me, then I'll be satisfied. But there's never enough affirmation. Maybe you devote yourself to wholesome pleasures, things like hobbies or vacations, but you're always wanting more. You're never satisfied. You consume hours and hours of entertainment, but there's never enough time there's always another show, another movie, another game. Or maybe you're here and you've turned to some darker things like controlled substances, drugs, and alcohol, and you've come to realize that the high never lasts quite long enough. Do any of those describe you or someone you know? Or what have I missed? The question that, that Haggai is getting at is, what are you devoting yourselves to? Reflect on that. Consider your ways. Not only what do you spend your time on, but why do you spend your time on it? 
One of the most common phrases I hear today among people, especially in my generation, is, boy, I'm just too busy. I'm always busy. What are we busy with? Certainly the people of Haggai's day were busy. They had paneled houses. They had nice houses to keep up. And that was important for them. They were busy doing that. But their busyness was neglecting the one thing that God told them to do. So busyness in and of itself is not an excuse to shirk your responsibilities or to uh, be apathetic to God's purposes. Does our busyness satisfy us? Or maybe for others, what do we spend our money on? Does that satisfy whatever it is that we're spending it on? A lot of people these days are deeply in debt. It means that they're spending money trying to get some satisfaction, but the money they have isn't enough to get that satisfaction. And so they go deeper and deeper into debt. They're looking for something. They're, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel trying to find something that will satisfy. That's what debt is. Does that satisfy? And we, we can lie to each other. You know, we can come to church, we can put a smile on our faces, and we can lie about the deep motivations of our hearts. And if we try hard enough, we can even lie to ourselves. But we can't lie to God. So he says, give careful thought to your ways. And it can be painful to come to the realization that what we've devoted our time and our money and our energy to is worthless. It's a waste. But it can be even more painful when someone else points it out publicly, namely, God himself. But we don't just need to consider our ways or be careful about our ways as individuals because he's writing here to a congregation. And so we have to ask ourselves as a pastoral staff and as the congregation of South Church, have we given careful thought to our ways, what we do as a church. We need to evaluate ourselves constantly. Are we all committed to and content with the simple proclamation of the word of God? Whether it's in informal conversations or whether it's a formal teaching or preaching or whatever it may be, do we believe that God's word is potent enough, powerful enough to achieve the ultimate desire of our hearts that people would turn from their sin and trust Christ and that he would be glorified? Or are we putting our trust in other things? Are we committed to faithful prayer that the Spirit of God would work through that proclamation to bring people to repentance and faith, knowing that whatever proclamation we can do is in vain if the Spirit of God is not at work in people's hearts? Are we committed to doing this work of proclamation ourselves? I think sometimes we think if we just give people some religious entertainment, maybe hint at the gospel, or uh, as we encourage one another to share some nice platitudes and encouragements that are cliche with one another, that that will be sufficient to move them closer to Christ and to form Christ's likeness in them more fully. Are we committed to doing this work ourselves? Because it is hard. It's not easy to proclaim God's word to someone else, whether it's an encouragement or a rebuke. And so because it is hard, are we committed to persevering in it, not growing weary or discouraged and giving up? That's what happened to the people of Israel. Persecution came, you read about that in Nehemiah. Persecution came and they said, all right, we're done. We're not gonna keep, keep at the Lord's work. It's not that important to us to endure persecution. It's not that uh, important for us to endure whatever suffering we may uh, enlist because of it. But these are the questions we need to ask ourselves as a church. We need to give careful thought to our ways. And when we ask those questions of ourselves, especially as a church, we need to be honest. 
We can't sugarcoat it. If we're evaluating our own hearts, it doesn't do us any good to try and deceive because ultimately we're not going to be the judge that we stand before at the last day. It's going to be Christ. And when we stand before him, what are we going to have to show? You know, Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, who is our, our crown of boasting when the Lord Jesus returns? Is it not you? Are we as a church committed to investing in people and building up the kingdom of God such that at the last day he will be pleased with our offering? We need to give careful thought to our ways. But we don't just need to do that in terms of reflecting on what we have been doing. We need to think carefully on our ways moving forward as well. And so verses seven and eight are really a call to repentance. For them at that time, he says, build the house. Right? If their particular sin was apathy towards this command of God to build the temple, then their repentance needed to be stop being apathetic and build the temple. They were zealous for their own houses, but they lacked zeal for the house of the Lord. But what does that mean for us today? Certainly we're not guilty of failing to build a building for God. So what do we need to do as God's people? Well, again, we need to think back. Why was the temple so important? Well, it was where God dwelled among his people. It's where blood sacrifices were made. It's where people could come into his presence. And building it was a sign of their devotion and commitment to him above all else. So what is our temple equivalent? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. It's Jesus. Jesus is the presence of God. He is God in the flesh who dwells among his people. He offered his own blood sacrifice to atone for our sins. And he is the reason we can enter the presence of God. So our devotion to Jesus then is our devotion to God, which sounds cliche if you've been in church for a while, but that's the truth. How we treat Jesus, how we speak of him, how we plan our lives around him. He is to be the center of our camp, so to speak. When we come near to God and Jesus, and as Luke sang, when we see his bloody corpse on the cross, we start to give more careful thought to our ways. And let me just say this, you cannot accurately give careful thought to your ways until you understand why Jesus died. Why did he hang on that cross? Did he hang on the cross so that our lives could be just a little bit easier? Did he hang on the cross so that we could get the life of success and the good relationships that we've always dreamed of? Was it so we could waste our days with endless entertainment and leisure? When we come to understand why Jesus died on the cross, as we consider our ways, as we give careful thought to our ways, we'll be better oriented to do what we are meant to do. And we get the answer in the text as to why Jesus died. It's the same reason that he wanted them to build the temple. Verse eight, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored or glorified, says the Lord. So he gives two reasons there, so that I may take pleasure in it, so that I may be glorified. Why did Jesus hang on the cross? It was so that God would be glorified. That's the ultimate answer. It's so that sins could be forgiven, but that's sort of the penultimate. So sins could be forgiven so that God would be glorified for his mercy. In Romans 15, he says, I'm taking the gospel of the Gentiles because it's, it's supposed to be that the Gentiles are gonna glorify God for his mercy. That's why he did all this, for his glory. 
And so as we give careful thought to our ways, we think about why Jesus hung on the cross, and we know that our purpose is to glorify God. But what does it mean to glorify God? It's kind of a, it's a churchy word. It's an abstract term. What does it mean? Well, he gives us one hint in the text and one outside of the text that I'll refer to. The first is to do what is pleasing to him. So the way Hebrew works, and in this passage, uh, he makes parallel statements. So if you ever read the Psalms, uh, there are statements that are kind of synonymous that he'll make one after another, and he's trying to solidify a point. And that's what he's doing here. One way that we glorify God is to do what is pleasing to him. So as we give careful thought to our ways, one of the key questions we need to ask is, is what I'm doing or is what I value pleasing to God? And note that this is not the same thing as is what I'm doing or is what I care about permitted by God. That's a totally separate category. There, there's some overlap for sure, but what is pleasing to him is in a much smaller category than what is permitted by him. So are we doing what is pleasing to him? And if we don't know what is pleasing to him, let's go back to the mirror. Let's look and to see what is pleasing to him. And the second idea, as it pertains to glorifying God, is to enjoy God. This, again, is not in the text, but it's a key idea in the realm of glorifying God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question says, what is the chief end of mankind? Or what is the purpose? Why are we here as creatures? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper has helpfully rephrased that because I think that too is a parallel statement. So he says to glorify God, uh, I'm sorry, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So the way we bring glory to God is we enjoy him. So what is it that we enjoy? Consider your ways. Give careful thought to this past week. What has brought you the most enjoyment? It's not to say that lesser things cannot bring enjoyment. For sure they can. God gives good gifts to his children. But underneath, as a foundation to all those secondary joys, do we have an ultimate joy in God? Do we really enjoy him? Do we enjoy spending time with him in prayer and reading his word? And again, these things are hard disciplines. Some of you may be more adept at them than others, but it's hard to have a daily devotional discipline but God calls us to that. He wants us to enjoy spending time with him. Or do we find recreation and entertainment more enjoyable than God and his purposes? After all, this is Memorial Day weekend, and this is sort of the kickoff of summer, right? We, we tend to think of summer in a, a bracket of Memorial Day to Labor Day. What's gonna be most enjoyable to you this summer? Is it going to be God and his purposes? Or is it going to be the vacation that you have planned? Do we enjoy lesser things more than gathering with the people of God week by week? Do trials and suffering overwhelm us or are we able to rest joyfully in his promises of comfort and peace? And sort of at the core of all of this is as you give careful thought to your ways, as you think about this past week, as you think about the week ahead, is there anything you can point to that demonstrates that you love the glory of God? Is there any one thing? 
If so, latch onto it and pray that God would grow that. But if there's not, give careful thought to your ways. And again, it's, it's easy to make excuses. You don't need to make them to me or any other pastor or any other Christian. You need to settle it with God. So are we living for his glory? That's a, a basic question to ask ourselves in an ongoing way. We need to give careful thought to our ways. But he doesn't just want us to give careful thought to our ways. Haggai continues in verse nine. He wants us to give careful thought to God's ways as well. And in verse nine, we see that there is a reckoning to God's ways. He settles all accounts. He says, you know all that stuff you were going after? You know all the hobbies and the lesser things that you pursued while neglecting my purposes? You know why that didn't satisfy? He says, I blew it away. That is a powerful statement. God is the one who frustrated their plans. Have you ever been frustrated by things not working out in your life the way you think they should? Have you ever thought in that moment that maybe God is behind that? That's clearly what this text teaches. These people had their plans to build their houses, to do their thing, to settle and enjoy the fruits of their land, but God frustrated their plans. He said, I blew it away. I made sure that it wouldn't satisfy you. And as we think about our own lives, he has made it so that the idols we create in our hearts don't satisfy. He's made it so that the success and the relationships and all the things that we pursue from a worldly perspective don't satisfy. Why? Because they're not him. By virtue of those things being created things, they do not satisfy. And because you and I are broken, he needs to fix us. He can't just let us continue. That would be merciless to let us continue in sin, unconfronted, unrebuked. But he confronts us in our sin because he loves us. He frustrates our plans so that he will humble us. He leaves us empty so that we might turn to him and be filled. And ultimately, he does all of these things because he knows what's best for us. And so the author of the Hebrews says, the Lord disciplines those he loves. This is the dramatic climax of Haggai's sermon. Consider God's ways. What if God is the one who has allowed you to hunger and thirst for something that will satisfy what if God is the one who points out to you that your life has been wasted? What if God wipes out everything you have and leaves you with nothing but himself? We need to give careful thought to God's ways. And when we do, we see in verse 12, the only proper response is to obey the Lord and to fear him. But when we do, when we obey the Lord, when we fear the Lord, he gives us the reward. That's verses 13 and 14. He gives us the greatest reward we could get, which is himself. If we get to verse 13 and we find that reward lame, the promise, I will be with you, if we find that lame or unsatisfying, then we need to go back to verse five and give careful thought to our ways once again because it is likely that if we find God and his promise of reward being himself, if we find that unsatisfying, then God is opposed to us because we're in sin. But if we get to verse 13 and we find the cool drink that refreshes the dry and thirsty hunger, then we can know that the promise is for us. That promise, I am with you, in verse 13, that's the ball game. That's the whole thing. That's what all of life is about, to be with 
God. The world is messed up the way that it is right now because our first parents, Adam and Eve, said, God, I don't want to be with you, right? I had my choice. I'd rather do my own thing. But the good news that Jesus brings is that God still wants to be with us. And he went and died on this cross so that he could be with us. That's what love is. So Haggai's sermon, like the gospel, starts out with God saying, I am against you. You're in sin, you're in rebellion, you need to give careful thought to your ways. But it ends with, I am with you. And that is a beautiful picture. You know, I heard this week that Satan often uses good news to entice us. And as we're drawn in by the false promises that he makes, we get deep into it and we find the bitter aftertaste that they don't satisfy. Whatever he's promising won't satisfy. In the gospel, it's the exact opposite. We're confronted with the bad news. We're confronted with what appears to be a harsh God. And he says, I'm against you because of your sin. But as we, as we press in and as we confess our sin, as we give careful thought to our ways, as we look in the mirror and see the ugliness in our hearts, we turn from those things and we find at the end of the day, we've gotten the most gracious good news we could ever receive to be in the presence of God himself. And that's what all of human history is working towards. Right now, today, whatever today is, May uh, 27th, 2018, this history, the time that is passing, is working towards a final day. And in that day, it says, I will be with them as their God, and they will be with me as my people. That's the ultimate end to all of this. But what do we do in the meantime? Well, to those who respond and who love that promise of verse 13, he stirs us up. Verse 14, the Lord stirred up the people of Israel to build the temple, and he can stir us up even today. It's not too late. Some of you might be sitting here and you think, boy, the last 15 years I've been walking away from God. It's not too late. You may have ignored the glory of God your entire life, the Lord still wants to be with you today. And when he stirs us up, we build his house. We've mentioned one aspect. The temple is God's presence in the world, and so Jesus perfectly embodies that as he is God's presence, God in the flesh. But we also, as the church, are the temple of God because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells in and among us. So what can we do? Let's give careful thought to our ways. What can we do to build up the church. It can start today. What can you do to encourage and build up other members of the church family? Now maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I don't know anybody here very well. How can I build them up if I don't even know them? Introduce yourself. After the service today, there'll be plenty of time for the next service. Introduce yourself. We do the kind of the greeting at the beginning. Turn around to that person you greeted and say, hey, what's your story? How long have you been coming to South? Where do you work? What's your family life? Like, just introduce yourself, get to know someone, and then ask them, how can I pray for you this week? I'll tell you what, any God-fearing person, to ask them what you can pray for them for, that's an encouragement. That's building up the body of Christ. And it can start today. And then what can we do to make sure that our neighbors know the gospel? Again, maybe you're discouraged at how little effort you've made to share Christ with the people around you. It doesn't have to be that way. It's not too late. Today could be the day God wants you to respond to him, to give careful thought to your ways and to live for his glory. So whose house are you building? 
Are you finishing yours off? You got the paneling on? Even today, you're thinking about, boy, what am I going to do today? What am I going to do with my day off tomorrow? What am I going to do this week? How am I going to enjoy the sunshine? We think nonstop about our houses. But if you're here today and your deepest desire is to live for God and his purposes, to live for his glory while we wait for him, then you can hear Haggai's sermon as an encouragement to persevere this morning. He wants you to give careful thought to your ways, but persevere in what you're already doing if you're already doing these things. Let's pray. Our Father, as we look back and give careful thought to our ways from this past week, we are reminded that we have done those things that we ought not to have done. And we have failed to do those things that we ought to have done. And we are in need of your mercy this morning. I pray that this gospel word from Haggai this morning would be a wake-up call for many of us, many of us who in our sloth and our apathy have neglected your purposes. I pray that we would wake up and give careful thought to our ways and repent moving forward. But to those of us who are here who yearn for your glory, who want to see you glorified among your people and among the whole earth, all the nations, may this charge this morning be a call to persevere in that good work. And Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.